0: Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and titled it Back to the Basics. If God were to ask you as to why I should let you into heaven, what would your answer be? I've lived a good life, I did not hurt anyone, I tried to be a good person. I obeyed all the laws to the best of my ability. I went to church every single Sunday. I gave the tithes to the church. Or maybe, you may say I was an elder, a deacon, a pastor, that he went on mission trips. Or you may say I went to mass every week, went to confession, said my Hail Marys, Or you may say, well, no matter how I live at the present time, I know I will make it into heaven because I said the sinner's prayer. Or, maybe you say, I'm justified by faith, but I also have a track record of good works. I've lived a good life, and because of all this, I know I'm going to heaven. Beloved, when it comes to getting into heaven, it's not a matter of answering the right questions or living the right way or keeping the right rules and regulations. It is not just answering a few questions with a yes and a no. It requires a spiritual resurrection from the dead. It is called new birth. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it is critical to understand the biblical truth about salvation and have a clearer understanding of the gospel. This is why we said we are going back to the basics or spiritual kindergarten. however you want to call it. So we need to know. We need to know what does it mean to be saved. We need to know what is the true gospel. Why should we know the true gospel? Because there is a false gospel. And we know that because Galatians, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, the apostle Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a heteros gospel or a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say, But even if we, an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anyone is preaching to your gospel contrary, he says, let him be accursed. Paul had to openly preach against the false gospel and warn the Galatians of this false gospel. This is the false gospel that even is preached today in various ways. And Satan is relentlessly attacking the true gospel through the proclamation of the false gospel. What are misrepresentations of the gospel today? I'll list a few. You're unhappy in life? You have no peace? No joy? Just try Jesus. He will fix all your problems. Is your life falling apart? You need a miracle in your life. Just try Jesus. He will fix it for you. Or maybe you're sick, you're poor. Jesus will make you rich. And he will give you financial success. Your business will begin to prosper. Just come to Jesus. Whatever help you need, Jesus will do it for you. If you suffer for Jesus, he will bless you. Then there is the only love gospel. Never preach on the holiness. The justice or God's wrath and God's anger. That was Old Testament. Only preach about the endless grace of God. Satan can get us off track with this false gospel. And we need to make sure we have a clear understanding of the gospel. And so, let's get into our text today, and we will, uh, we'll understand what we are trying to say through this text, what Paul is trying to say through this text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And if you have your Bibles, we're reading from the ESV. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The summary statement of verses 8 through 10 is this. God saved us through grace, through faith, not of human works, it is a gift of God, and this salvation results in good works. I've derived three truths from this passage. First, found in verse 8a, you are saved from the wrath of God. Second, found in verses 8b through 9 you're saved by God apart from good works. And third, found in verse 10, you are saved unto good works. Let's read verse 8a. For by grace you've been saved through faith. The word saved is a Greek word, sozo. The expression, you have been saved in the English, is difficult to capture. It's a perfect. Passive participle. And when you're looking at a perfect passive participle, it emphasizes an action initiated in the past, and the effects of which continue into the present and beyond. So you were saved in the past, and you continue in the present, and you will continue in the beyond. It's a passive voice. Meaning, this action is initiated by someone outside of us, not by us. So it is God saving us. God is our savior. Now what has he saved us from? We read in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of air, the spirit of that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Meaning we were lost. We were spiritual corpses. We were cadavers in the futility of our thinking. We were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in us. Ephesians chapter 4 says that clearly. And as a result, we were under the wrath of God. Psalm 5 verses 4 through 6 reads, For you are not a God for delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord, or Yahweh, abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That means the wrath of God is upon the wicked. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Another place we can go to see the wrath of God is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, which says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, like what? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul goes on to say in verse 6, that on account of these things, the wrath of God of, is coming. And then he goes on to say, in these you too once walked past tense when you were living in them. So when we were not children of God, we were under the wrath of God. And God's wrath will finally be poured out onto this world, to the world of believers. And anyone who rejects Christ will be alienated from God in His holiness. They are objects of God's wrath. So the only way we can be saved from the wrath of God is if someone takes our place. This was the reason there were sacrifices in the Old Testament. An innocent animal had to die in our place. And that is why we read in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The only way this could happen once for all, is for God to become man and die for us. And that is what we see. Jesus becoming man, living among us, keeping the law perfectly, and then becoming sin for us, the great exchange. He dies on the cross, pays the penalty for our sins. As he hung on the cross, the infinite wrath of God for the infinite sins of his people was poured out on him. That at one point of time, God turned his face away from his son. And that's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died in our place. He became our substitute. And the infinite wrath of God was poured out upon him. This is what we need to tell people when we share the gospel. Yes, there is the good news of the gospel of salvation. But the good news will not make sense if we do not understand the bad news. This is why it is important, extremely important, to drive this truth into the listener that we are sinners under the wrath of God. This is why sin needs to be addressed, sin needs to be taught. It is this realization that one is a sinner that helps one see the need for a Savior. You know the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, don't you? And as you read the story, and I'll read this for you, it says Jesus was going through Samaria and he came to this town called Sychar near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jesus was tired from his journey. And and he sat down by the well. It says it was about noon. When a woman came down to draw water. It says not just a woman. A Samaritan woman came down to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The conversation advances to the point... Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, Go, call your husband and come back. Jesus was driving the point across. The woman got it. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you're now living with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. It is only when the woman realized that she was a sinner, that she was living in sin, that she was breaking the commandments, that she saw the need for a Savior. This is what sinners need to understand. According to God's justice, you and I deserve God's wrath. Instead, according to God's grace, you and I get salvation. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve eternal life. But in His grace, He gives us eternal life. According to God's mercy, you and I are given what we deserve. Not given what we deserve. That's the wrath of God. Instead we are transformed. He did not just reform us, he recreated us. We are nothing less than holy, having the eternal nature of God. In fact, if you were to die today as a believer, you would go right into the presence of God, your soul would go right into the presence of God because you as a believer are positionally holy. There is nothing obstructing you positionally to stand in front of God. And that's what we get. The sinner needs to understand that. If our salvation was based on something you and I accomplished, then it would no longer be grace. If it is something that God gave us because he foresaw something good in us, then it is no longer God's grace. If it is based on our free will that we chose because of who we are, then, my beloved, it's no longer God's grace. I want to give you two examples of two people in the Bible. One trusted in good works, and the other trusted in God for righteousness. And we see that in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, a parable of someone who trusted in themselves, they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, prayed, "God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you understand what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And the tax collector was saying, Lord, be merciful. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men, right? Two men. One did good, prayed, fasted twice a week, gave tithes to the church, but went to the lake of eternal fire. The other man was a tax collector, far removed from any form of external righteousness. But he was justified. Why? Because he trusted in God's righteousness and not in his good works to save him. Verse 8a in Ephesians chapter 2 continues. For by grace you've been saved through faith. How does this amazing salvation come to us? Paul says it is through faith. What is faith? not some subjective feeling or merely something that you assume is true. It's not being optimistic, like having a positive mental attitude or the power of positive thinking, hoping it would be true for you or being self-confident in your belief. Faith, my beloved, is trusting God, trusting in God who is reliable and trustworthy. Now, the Bible teaches some things about faith. The Bible says that faith is a gift of God. Sovereignly given to man as a gift. Now, there are other gifts in the Bible. Grace is a gift. Repentance is a gift. And Scripture identifies faith as a gift of God's grace. Would you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. And as you turn there, let me read this for you. Philippians 129, it says, For it has been granted to you. See the words? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. God is the one who grants you the ability to believe in Him. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Verse 16. Acts chapter 3, verse 16. And as you turn there, it says, And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And listen, my friend, this is what it says. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all that faith that was given to this man through Jesus. If you're in Acts, please turn a few pages down to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 27. Acts 18, verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, sorry, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. They were able to believe through grace. It was granted to them. Saving faith is God's gift. You know, if you realize, and we were in the passage last week, an unbeliever is dead in their sins and with no ability or desire to know God. There's a passage in the New Testament, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, The God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever, or blinded the minds of the unbeliever, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel makes no sense to the unbeliever. You can whisper the gospel into their ears. You can shout out the gospel from the rooftops. The best sermons will be jaded to the unbeliever. But, here's the but. But when God graciously opens the eyes of the unbeliever and moves them from their natural condition of spiritual deadness to faith in Christ, their eyes are enlightened. And they begin to see the hope That the gospel brings. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of salvation. And we cannot take any credit for our faith. Unless the Lord opens our eyes, none of us would have received that gift. You know this. You share the gospel with people around you. And you share it and you share it and nothing makes sense to them. They sit in church week after week, listening to sermons, fine sermons from fine preachers. But they never come to an understanding of the truth. In fact, the Bible is boring to them. They could sit and read the newspaper cover to cover and have no problem with understanding. But they open the Bible and that's the best pill that they can have to put them to sleep. The Bible is boring. Why? Have you thought about that? It's because it doesn't make any sense to a spiritually dead person. But, but when God gives them the gift of faith, something happens. Their eyes are enlightened. And they begin to see the truth of the gospel. So when you think about faith, yes... It is given to us by God. And faith comes from hearing God's word. Hearing the word of Christ. This is why it's important to proclaim the gospel. You're not just sharing experience, you're sharing God's word. You need to share the truth of God's word. And when you share the truth of God's word, with the people you want to evangelize, God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes right in there and judges them. And as God gives them the gift of faith, they're able to understand God's word and make sense. That's why I'm sure you've done this and I've done this. As we evangelize, we keep praying, Lord, open their eyes so that they can see the truth of the gospel. And this is what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8a says, let me read that for you again. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And so saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. And how do you know this? It is through faith. Let's move on to the second point, the second truth. And that's found in verse 8b and 9. It says, you're saved by God apart from good works. Verse 8B begins with this phrase, and this is not your doing. It's not faith plus penance, it is not Mary and the saints, it's not Christ plus keeping the sacraments. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is this faith, which is a channel by which the grace of God comes to us, is not because of us, it is the gift of God. No one can say it was the grace of God plus my faith that got me into heaven. Because even if the faith to believe in God's word was our contribution to salvation, then God doesn't get the credit. Salvation is all by God's grace. Nothing that you and I do can get us into God's kingdom. This is why Paul says in verse 8b, This is not your doing. Then he goes on to say, Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And we'll come back to Ephesians understand what it says. So, Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, according to Romans 3.20, Paul is saying, one cannot be saved by keeping the law. Sinful man has no capacity or no ability to keep the law perfectly. Why? Not only does he not have the capacity, he does not have the inclination to keep God's law perfectly. Go on into verses 21 and 22. He goes on to say, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Paul is saying here, how do we get the righteousness of God? It's through Jesus Christ. It is given to all who believe in Christ. Keep going down to verses 26 and 27. He says, What to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then he goes on to 27, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And then he goes on to say in 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is what Paul says, you are saved apart from works. There is no way works could save you. Let's look at the third truth. And the third truth is found in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You're saved unto good works. Let me read verse 10 for you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before them, beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, this is what Paul says here. Paul says, we are his workmanship. God is a workman. He is the artist. He's the one for fashions. He is the potter. He is the one who takes a lump of clay, a shapeless mass of clay, and begins to work on it. The work is his, not ours. The word workmanship comes here in this passage, and the other one is in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Would you please turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And as you turn there, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul uses the term workmanship there in reference to the creation of the world. Just as God brought the creation into existence, so it is, he says, When he creates a soul. When he saves a soul. The creation in Genesis chapter 1 was made out of nothing. That's how he created the world. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. And when God creates something out of nothing that did not exist before, it's the same way God does when he recreates a Christian. I say recreates because he created us one. We lost the image of God at the fall. We were sinners at that point of time, and now God recreates, he creates a Christian out of nothing. We are dead people and he makes us a new creation. I want to lead you to a passage that's found in Second Corinthians chapter four verse six. Second Corinthians chapter four verse six. It says, For God said, let light shine out of darkness as shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is just like how God spoke light into existence. In the same way, God is speaking supernatural light into the soul of a person and bringing people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is God's doing. Come back to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And let's read the rest of it. It says, We are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, we have a very fine craftsman in this church. For those of you who do not know him, he creates wonderful, intricate wooden products ranging from Christmas tree ornaments to wooden block games. And let me assure you, you'll be amazed when you see the finished product. And if you probe further, if you ask him further, how he does this, he will show you a plain piece of wood. He begins his work by carving it. And then as he carves it and creates the most amazing product, the product can take no credit for himself or itself. The plain block of wood can take no credit for itself. It's the artist who takes the credit Because he's the one who finished the product. In the same way, God is a craftsman. He creates good works. He produces good works in us by creating us in Christ Jesus, says verse 10. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. God has given us eternal life. We've been made a new creation. We've been made alive. We've been raised from the dead. We've been seated in the heavenlies. And the end result... Is a life that will manifest good works. How can one say that a believer, as a believer, we must show evidence of good works? Because some people struggle with that. When they think of good works, they think it's uh, work. And aren't we saved by grace? What is this good works coming in? Well, Paul doesn't say that you are saved by good works. Paul says you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. When God justified us, He didn't just leave us as a person justified. If it was so, we can say, well, good works are not needed. But God didn't just justify us. He regenerated us. He sanctified us. He made us born again. We were made new creations and we were sanctified. That means we were made a new creation with the ability to do good works. So when Christ justifies a person, he sets them apart to a life of sanctification. So in other words, the result of salvation is always a godly life. Good works are not the cause of our salvation. Good works is a result of our salvation. We are not saved by good works. We are saved unto good works. So, if there is no good work a works in a person's life, then his salvation is really in question. And we can say that. Why? Would you please turn with me to a couple of scripture passages? Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 17. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Another passage we can turn to is Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And as you turn there, it reads, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So a genuine believer shows evidence of salvation in their lives demonstrated by good works, We are not talking about a life with perfect good works. That will never be possible on the side of eternity. We're talking about good works being the desire and direction of a genuine believer. If a person claims to be saved, but has no desire to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and passions and live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, then a person needs to go back. And examine his own life for salvation because genuine salvation will alter a person's behavior always there will be a change in lifestyle true salvation is not just agreeing to the truths of the scripture it will result in obedience again we are not looking at perfection because on this side of eternity we will never see that we will have to see Christ face to face in order to be perfect, but there will be a desire for godliness, a continual, habitual desire for godliness in a person's life. It's hypocrisy to say that you're saved and live in continual sin. It's hypocrisy. Faith without repentance is dead faith. we know that. John chapter 3 verse 36 says whoever believes in the Son as eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son so John changes the belief into obey that means belief is equal to obey do you see that in John 3 36 whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. He didn't say whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not believe the Son the actual literal understanding there is obey And if he does not obey the Son, then the wrath of God remains on him. Let's move on into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the remainder of the verse. And so let me read that again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him. that we should walk in them. So what Paul is saying is God prepared those works even before he saved us. Do you see that? God not only predestinated our salvation, which is what he was teaching in Ephesians chapter 1, he not only predestined our salvation, but he also predestined our works. God did not just stop with my salvation. Yes, he planned my salvation before the foundation of the world. But he also planned out my works before the foundation of the world. Because he says, which God prepared beforehand. Yeah, Paul is stating that we have been chosen by God to be saved unto sanctification... Resulting in glorification, God not only saved you, He regenerated you, He sanctified you, and as a result, he is, you are able to live the way He wants you to live, or which He had already foreordained for you to live. If you think your salvation is only about your forgiveness, and not about your obedience... Then you have completely misunderstood God's plan of salvation. Because, my beloved, if He has justified you, then He has also sanctified you. So you cannot live a life with a license to sin. Now, some of you will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. He ordains my coming to faith, He has ordained my good works. So let me just sit back and not do anything because isn't that what the text says? Well, you will say no. Paul knew that. And so what is Paul saying? Follow with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Let me read that again for you. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Now he knows what our argument is going to be. And so he says that we should walk in. In them. Do you see the direct responsibility that Paul holds us? Yes, your good works have been foreordained before the foundation of time, but you have a responsibility to walk in them. The means God is going to use to fulfill that is the fact of your obedience, that you will be walking in them in true obedience. Yes, our responsibility to walk in them. How do we walk in them? In closing, John McOtter has given nine marks of saving faith. Evidences that we are in the faith. Reliable proofs of saving faith. The first evidence of saving faith is love for God. Psalm 42 verse 1 says, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Won't be perfect love for God. None of us will ever love God perfectly. Will we ever? On this side of eternity? So are we to be disappointed? But we know when we see Him face to face, we will love Him perfectly. But until then, we will have this ongoing desire to love God. Second evidence of saving faith is repentance from sin. Hatred of sin. It will always accompany true brokenness. You will hate sin with a passion. I can give this example. You haven't seen a leper. I have seen a leper. I have stood by a leper and the stench that emanates from the leper's body is unbearable. You cannot go anywhere near him. Would you go and lick the sores of a leper? In the same way, as a child of God, you will have a hatred for sin. You will despise sin. Does it mean that you will never sin? As I said last week, borrowing from someone, he said, it's not that you won't sin. It's not that you can't sin. You don't have to sin. Why? Because you've died with Christ and you've risen and you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're not in the domain of Satan anymore. You're not in the domain of the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of light. You're in the domain of Jesus Christ. Another evidence of true faith is genuine humility. Humility. A person cannot be saved unless and until he trusts in Christ. In order to trust in Christ, he has to come to an end of trusting in himself. That's what true salvation is. Recognizing that you are broken. There's nothing in you. There's nothing you can do. And that's why Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A fourth evidence of true saving faith is devotion to God's glory. Doing all things for the glory of God. Whether you're sitting here in church, whether you're at your workplace, whether you're a realtor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, a receptionist, a office manager, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, whatever you do, you're doing all things for the glory of God it'll become evident if you're doing it for the glory of God if someone were to come along and take that away from you because then you and your status quo is at stake your desires is at stake A fifth reliable evidence of true faith is prayer do we do that enough? We are all guilty of that, right? I remember in seminary, one of the class was, we had to pray. Yes. You say, well, that's obvious, Pastor, right? Well, we had to pray for an hour. And Dr. Roscoff, who was my dear professor, he made it a point. He was a man of prayer. He's written a three volume, if you can get that, it's amazing, on prayer. And he would teach us to pray. And I remember trying to sit down to pray. At the end of five minutes, my mind is out there wondering on different things in the world. I disciplined myself to 10 minutes again. Sitting down for praying for one hour. I don't know. I traveled the world around in 80 days, you know, in just one hour. I've gone all over the place. Do we do that enough as a church? I don't want to make you feel guilty. This is not a opportunity for a guilt trip. But let me tell you that if you want to see growth in this church, and I look at growth not in numbers because I look at growth in terms of spiritual growth. Even if you have 10 people in this church, if you grow spiritually, you 10 will go out and bring 10 more people. That's what spiritually growing people do. They will evangelize. And the only way for us to grow is to grow in prayer. Sitting about time in prayer. And if I look at you, I know your faces because I, I pray for you. And I say this in humility because I want you to follow that and, and take the directory and pray for it. Pray for people. Pray for five people in this church every day. Or maybe every week. And you'll be amazed what God does through that prayer. Another evidence of saving faith is selfless love. Selfless love, not only for God, but for people sitting around you. A pastor once said, I love to preach. I want to be a pastor. I love ministry. I just don't like people. That is not selfless love. Folks, look look around you. Are you loving one another truly? When I say selfless, it's unconditional. Giving up of yourselves for the other person. A seventh mark of saving faith is separation from the world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. That's why John says this very clearly in 1 John. We don't need a commentary for this. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life... The boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. As someone said, yes, your boat will be in the water, has to be in the water, but if water gets into the boat, you're in trouble. An eighth mark of saving faith is spiritual growth. You remember the parable of the soil? In Matthew chapter 13 go home and read that. True believers will always grow spiritually. It's I'm saying always. Not hundredfold because it says he doesn't say hundredfold. He says some hundredfold, some 60 and some 30 and may I add some 10. We'll all grow. We should grow spiritually. And if you are not growing spiritually, we have not grown. If your understanding and knowledge of God's Word in this church has not grown on an incline from the day you first, first started attending here, then you're not growing spiritually. That's why you need to find a church where you're growing in God's Word. It's important. It's important. You cannot be taught the elementary principles of life if someone shows you the letter A and say, this is A and this is how you pronounce A and that's what you do every Sunday, you are in trouble. You need to grow spiritually. It's so find a church where God's word is being taught. But not only that, the onus is on you for you to grow spiritually with the God, with the word of God and all that you have at your hands. And the ninth and final mark of saving faith, my friend, is obedient living obedient living Does that make sense? And that's what 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 says, by this you know that we have come to know him if we keep what? Speak to me. His commandments. His commandments. Obedience is synonymous with belief. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. I love my wife. I want to do everything that she tells me to do. Why? Because I love her. Isn't that men out here? If not, you're in trouble. Some of you are looking around. Three truths from scriptures. Three truths from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You're saved from the wrath of God, you're saved by God apart from good works. And you're saved unto good works. May this be an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of the gospel. Rehearse the gospel every single day. The gospel is not just to save you. The gospel is to help you in your sanctification and it's the gospel that will help you in your glorification. You are saved by grace, you're sanctified by grace and you'll be glorified by grace. And there's no other way. And so we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every single day of our life. And the gospel is simply this. That God sent Jesus Christ to live among us. He lived a perfect life among us. He fulfilled the law. And he went to the cross. And he died on the cross for our sins. The sins, our infinite sins, were placed upon him. And this is not a fair bargain at all. Because when you trust in Christ and the finished work of Christ on the cross, his perfect righteousness... Is imputed to you. And so when God looks at you, He sees Christ in you. And when God looks at Christ, He sees us miserable sinners. That's what happened on the cross. And God accepted Christ's death on the cross for our behalf and was seen in the fact that He was raised again the third day and He was ascended up into heaven and He's going to come again in glory. And at that time, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. We will bow down as Jesus Lord because we worship him as a king of kings. We are saved to eternal life. But there will be others who will bow down in fear because they will be judged to the lake of eternal fire. Where do you belong? May we commit our lives today. This is the day for salvation. If you trust in Christ, Christ will save you. If you beg to him for salvation, Christ will save you. He is merciful and he is kind. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day that we have to worship you. Not just through songs, but through the word. And right now, even through our offering. Father, we pray that you be honored and glorified through each one of this. Help us, Lord, to understand this word. Help us to be good stewards of the word, that we will go out and study your word more and more. That we'll show evidences of good works in our lives. Not because to gain brownie points from you, but because we have righteousness of Christ in us. You've recreated us. You've created us in order to demonstrate good works. And so, Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say,